This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. S. Deborah Kang about her book, The INS on the Line, Making Immigration Law on the U.S.-Mexico Border, 1917-1954, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Dr. Kang is an Associate Professor of History at California State University, San Marcos. The INS On The Line explores the history behind immigration and naturalization service throughout the 20th century, interrogating how this agency was critical to the creation and recreation of immigration law throughout this period. Dr. Kang shows that the INS did not just think of itself as a law enforcement agency, but through numerous legal innovations and interpretations, embraced an identity as a lawmaking body responsible for balancing the many competing interests, both at local, regional, and national levels. Dr. Kang, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So I guess to get things started and to give our you know listeners an idea of what this uh, study was for you, can you tell them how you became interested in it? Yeah, sure. So I had studied both legal history and immigration history in graduate school, and I was looking for a way to put together those two interests. I was particularly interested in this issue of immigration federalism. And I had begun a project looking at how, at the state level, various states uh, manage their immigrant populations through uh, alien land laws, uh, laws that might have limited their employment, or even uh, their access to certain kinds of licenses and licenses that would have helped them to uh, uh, survive and subsist through various kinds of employment. But uh, I realized that that kind of project would be quite difficult uh, because it would require traveling to multiple states. Uh, And so I started thinking at the national level, and I looked at the INS and began a project there and proceeded with the question um, about how the Border Patrol in the early 20th century might have interacted with state and local police forces to enforce the law. And that, as you know, has become a very timely question, especially um, uh, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. 
But when I finally got to the National Archives, I realized that 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 kind of information, information about national, state, and local cooperation with respect to immigration policing, that information wasn't readily available. And anyone who's looked at the INS records know uh, knows that this is a very uh, incomplete uh, set of records. So I realized that it would take a lot of digging to get at that story as well. But at the same time, as often happens when you go to the archives, you stumble upon another story. And, and that's exactly what happened. I stumbled upon another set of stories about how um, a lot of regional interests inform the shaping of national immigration policies. And so instead of talking about immigration federalism per se, I think the book gets at this issue of how this borderlands region, how these local and even global interests shaped uh, national immigration laws. And so kind of going off of that, can you tell our listeners what the INS is or, you know, was during this period? And how does your work kind of fit into the historiography about this agency? Sure. So the Immigration and Naturalization Service was created in 1891. And in 1891, it was known as the Bureau of Immigration. And this agency was created to be the enforcement arm of the nation's growing uh, immigration infrastructure. As you well know, in the uh, late 1800s, the Congress begins, begins passing a set of our first federal immigration restriction laws, and the Bureau of Immigration was created to enforce those laws at our nation's land and sea ports of entry. So my story begins in the early 20th century, and I take a look at how the Immigration and Naturalization Service, as well as the Border Patrol, how this agency functions on the U.S.-Mexico border. And when I began the project, there were very few studies of the INS. I think Erica Lee's study of Ellis Island was one of the most prominent. Uh, there there. Are, there were and are a few studies of INS operations on Ellis Island, um, but there hadn't yet been a lot of work done on uh, the INS on the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, what work did exist tended to take one of two perspectives. Uh, one was what you could call a pluralist approach, and this was an approach that said that the Immigration and Naturalization Service was a pawn of special interests. It was a pawn of big business, especially Southwestern agriculture. And then there was another body of literature that looked that, that adopted what you could call a society-centered approach and looked at the very real and substantial impacts of the INS and especially the Border Patrol on immigrant communities and especially Mexican immigrant and Mexican-American communities in the Southwest. But I've always been a little bit of a policy wonk, and I, uh, I wanted to do a study that explored sort of the nuts and bolts. I wanted to know, what is this agency actually doing? What happens uh, inside the offices of the INS and the Border Patrol on a day-to-day -day basis? And I, I found that 
those answers, the answers to those questions weren't quite addressed in the literature at the time. So that, that's, that's where I, I placed the book, uh, the project, when I began. And one of the things that I found very interesting about your study, uh, being someone who is not well versed in this to begin with, you know, I just wanted to be able to read stuff and uh, kind of learn about this history. And so your book was very informative on this aspect. But one of the things that I found interesting was the differentiation that you make between immigrants and border crossers. And so what is the difference between these two groups and why is that important to this history? Sure. So uh, immigrants are those individuals that the federal government and the INS classify as those individuals entering the United States for permanent residence and ultimately citizenship. Border crossers is uh, a kind of umbrella term that I use to refer to the INS's official term, which is non-immigrants. They have this category known as non-immigrants in this period. And those non-immigrants refer to those individuals coming into the United States for short periods of time for a variety of reasons. They're coming into work. They're coming, uh, they're coming back and forth for leisure purposes, to go shopping, to visit friends and relatives. Uh, and then many others are coming to go to school. And the border crossers are very significant uh, because of their numbers. And I think I have a table. I uh, inserted a table from the INS records into the last uh, few pages of the first chapter of my book. And and that table shows you that the numbers of border crossings at both the U.S.-Canadian and U.S.-Mexican borders reach into the millions every year. And and to get a sense of the scope and scale of this, uh, you know, the number numbers of border crossers, whether they're pedestrians or vehicular border crossers, those numbers continue to be huge. And here, if if your li- listeners are interested, the U.S. Department of Transportation actually keeps those records. And, and you know, if you you know use Google Department of Transportation border crossing, you'll you'll find those numbers. And so, one of the things that you do is talk about how the INS is kind of creating and recreating the border. Um, And how people actually thought about the border, because to us, probably most people who are listening, you know, we think of the border and we think of it as kind of sort of a natural thing. I think many people during this time period, depending, at least depending on where they are in the country. But you point out that that was not always the case. And you say at one point that people thought of it more as um, an imaginary line at times. And so. How did this gradually change throughout the 20th century that you see? Sure. So I think one of the really neat things about Borderlands history, the scholarship uh, of this field, is that they're, they're sending this message that we have to understand borders as constructed places. And um, the Borderlands historians have have conveyed the ways in which Native peoples, early settlers, the European states that were in the American West, whether that be, you know, Russia, Spain, France, uh, and later the United States, 
all of these individuals and entities envisioned the border uh, and the borderlands in different ways. And I, I feel like what my work does is it contributes to, to that argument, to that scholarship. Uh, but instead of looking at how Native people, settlers, and uh, states constructed the borders, I look at this particular agency. And in many ways, I see my book as a, as a kind of intellectual history of the INS. I, I look at how these bureaucrats on the ground think about the border. And what I found in the archives is that they think about the border in multiple ways. And so sometimes they think about it as, as a sovereign dividing line. Sometimes they, they think of it as an imaginary line. And in that respect, they adopt the perspective of many of the residents, especially the border crossers who, who for much of the, the century very easily cross the line to the point where in their minds it was non-existent. And and the INS very much facilitated those crossings and, and helped to erase the line. But then in addition to envisioning the border in these two ways, as a sovereign boundary, as an invisible line, the INS and especially the Border Patrol helped to redefine the border as this jurisdiction, as a policing jurisdiction and this vast space uh, in which the Border Patrol could conduct its operations um, and then I should add, uh, it also saw the border as, as an economic and social zone. So by admitting the border crossers, for example, um, the INS was not only erasing the line, it was actually creating this binational economic and social zone. So th this argument is important because a, a lot of people, uh, especially today, wield these very... Um, uh, negative arguments uh, that blame immigrants themselves for erasing the line and erasing the line through these undocumented crossings or, you know, violating our national sovereignty or whatnot uh, or breaking the law. But when you look at this, this history of the INS, you realize that the INS itself, this federal agency, played a pivotal role in defining the border in multiple ways. So yes, sometimes they enforce the law and sometimes they enforce it in these really terrible ways and ways that respond to the demands of the nativists and harm the immigrants. But we also have to remember that the INS itself uh, played this contradictory role and ended up opening the border uh, for this and created laws and policies to do that for the sake of local residents uh, and big businesses. Yeah, and I find it so interesting, you know, your discussion of how the border, you know, looks to different groups at different times and, you know, how the, how borderlands history in general is looking at that. Because for me, I think it really illustrates the ways in which, you know, something that is seen as supposed to be kind of fixed is is just never really fixed it's always in flux and really the border itself is created through that entire process yes yes and uh yeah so it it what we mean by the u.s mexico border right it changes over time and you're absolutely right I think the perspective that one takes on the border depends on who you are. You know, are you a student who needs to go, you know, cross the border every day to go to school? Are you a business person who who relies on undocumented labor, right? The undocumented workers who cross every day, or 
you know, are you a, a landowner, one of these farmers and ranchers, to, to cite an example from today, who are, you know, upset about these unauthorized crossings and you decide you're going to create your own <laughs> civilian or vigilante border patrol, right? So it's, it's very interesting. And, and so I think it's important to remember that um, the stories about this border and borders in general are very complex. They're, they're multi-layered. They're quite nuanced, and and it's not at all the story that we're getting from Washington D.C. today, right? Policymakers in the White House are very much flattening the history uh, and even the the very complex and important issues that are facing the border and the border region today. It's not simply a story about immigration enforcement or closing the line. There are a lot of other issues and interests that that we need to think about. And so when thinking about this history and everything like that, you begin the book in 1917. And so and you start looking at the Immigration Act of 1917. And so how is this act pivotal in the history that you tell? What sort of effects does it have both on immigrants and border crossers? So I think there is an unintended consequence at play here. So that that Immigration Act was passed in February of 1917, and the U.S. decides to enter World War I a couple months later in April. And that act uh, becomes a tool. It wasn't designed as such, but it becomes a tool to help policymakers um, enforce the immigration laws in, in a much more restrictive fashion on the U.S.-Mexico border. Prior to 1917, the immigration laws hadn't been enforced that strictly, uh, and this is a result of the labor needs of the railroads and the southwestern uh, growers, but things start to change in the 19-teens, and especially by 1917, uh, with our entry into the war, you see uh, an apex one of these many high points in the history of American nativism. And this time, um, that nativism is targeted against Germans. Uh, and then it, it, it also exacerbates the, the underlying uh, xenophobia that's already directed toward ethnic Mexicans. And, and that nativism has a, has a very long history. But in the 19-teens, what's happening is uh, you're seeing... Uh, the raids of Pancho Villa as a result of the Mexican Revolution. And those raids are, are very much making uh, uh, residents of the borderlands very upset and, and clearly officials in, in Washington, D.C. So, you, so the 1917 Act is, is kind of set uh, within this broader series of events <laughs> that, in general, um, uh, reflect the heightened nativism and anti-immigrant and anti-Mexican sentiment that's emerged on the U.S.-Mexico border. And it's also part of uh, a broader range of things that draws the eye of Washington policymakers to the border. Uh, I think for a long time, Washington didn't pay attention to the border, and you could even argue the West. <laughs> it's often seen as a periphery. Um, but because of, uh, of the raids of, of VIA and then the Zimmerman telegram and uh, 
the nation's entry into World War I, Washington policymakers begin to worry about this thing that we now call national security. Right? They begin to worry about national security on the line, and they use that Immigration Act to, to strengthen national security on the border, and they begin enforcing it against Mexican immigrants. And here they're using the, the literacy test, the new literacy test that's contained within that act. They're actually, uh, for the first time, asking Mexican immigrants to pay uh, the increased head tax under that act. And that head tax was $8. And today that translates into about $160. So, so, it, it, so the 17 Act marks, marks a shift toward enforcement on the U.S.-Mexico border. And for me, when kind of reading about that, you know, as you've, as you said earlier, you kind of, the kind of story that we're kind of fed today from Washington about, you know, the history of the border and everything like that is one that's really quite different from the one that you tell, specifically when looking just at the 1917 Act, well, it's just like, that's when you kind of see a marked change, as you just said, in people actually starting to enforce it. Whereas, you know, these days we kind of have this story of like that the U.S. has always been a quote unquote sovereign nation with hard borders and everything like that. Yes. Yes. I think today there's a conscious forgetting of of history and and again, as I've mentioned before, the complexities of history. So even today, the administration isn't telling us that, for example, the numbers of border crossers are huge. Uh, the, the significance of these border crossers to that regional economy and the economies of both the United States and Mexico uh, is huge, right? The, the economic contributions run into the billions of dollars. You know, the Trump administration isn't telling you that there have been multi-million dollar investments in upgrading uh, the border crossings uh, for, uh, for specifically for the purposes of trade. Uh, and so, yes, you're getting this, this very, very one-sided story. It's a very distorted picture of what's going on at the U.S.-Mexico border, and it requires a forgetting of the importance, the longstanding importance of immigration and immigrants uh, to the United States. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And in terms of, you know, thinking about how the agency kind of develops throughout the 20th century, um, what role does the Border Patrol have in all of this? Uh, you kind of mentioned them earlier, but one of the things that I found interesting about your work is the way that the Border Control Border Patrol is sometimes at odds with like the INS itself and yes. how they are trying to kind of regulate, cr create, recreate a border. Yes. So this is one of the most uh, interesting discoveries. Uh, in the archival record, I, I discovered that 
you know, there are these internal divisions within the INS, and, and these are divisions that persist to this very day. There is this longstanding uh, negative stereotype that immigration inspectors, the individuals that work at the ports of entry, that these were quote unquote desk men and that they were quote unquote softer than border patrol agents because border patrol agents tended to work outside, they had to be mobile, uh, they had to travel long distances in a single day. Sometimes they had to relocate for a couple of days or weeks to conduct an operation. Right? And so they were seen as, even though they were uh, and are a civilian policing agency, they were seen as something more akin to a criminal law enforcement unit, uh, to, to a police office, uh, to a uh, a police office, a sheriff's office, and so on. And, and, and border patrol officers then and now continue to see themselves in that way, you know, as, as, uh, and it's really contributed to uh, the pervasive violence within the border patrol, both then and, and now. So that was that was one of the interesting things about about the archival record. And it's that conflict is one of um, many reasons you see the Border Patrol and even the INS functioning as, uh, as a lawmaking entity. So there's, there's sometimes a competition for power and authority, and it's out of that, that competition that you see both agencies trying to push, push their own agendas with the central office in Washington, D.C., and even uh, policymakers in Congress. So I think um, one of the important, other important things to note about the Border Patrol is that it played a very powerful role in defining immigration law as we know it today. So we really have to see the Border Patrol as its own interest group. And I think we also need to see the INS this way, right? So this is an agency that isn't just implementing the laws. They, they have enormous leeway with policymakers uh, and, again, members of Congress to rewrite legislation and rewrite legislation on terms that are uh, beneficial to them. And this is one of the things that I show in my book. Uh, it's it's because of the needs and interests of the Border Patrol that we get this thing called the 100-mile zone. And as you may know, it's within this 100-mile zone that the Border Patrol uh, possesses enormous power to stop, search, and seize anyone they suspect to be an undocumented immigrant. And the standard story, the standard history of the 100-mile zone is that it was created by an act of Congress. And, and the dates here differ. I've seen 46, 51. But in my book, I tell this story about how those statutes, the 46 statute and the 51 statute, were, uh, a, were direct products of uh, lobbying efforts by Border Patrol agents in the Southwest. And it's a result of their experiences and their difficulties, uh, frankly, difficulties in enforcing the immigration laws that they successfully lobbied Congress to create this 100-mile zone. 
And I think for me, part of what I really appreciated about your discussion of the Border Patrol is that it really shows that you can't look at, you know, these government agencies as a monolith, as you were saying, that there is these internal divisions. And so when you think about that and, you know, kind of where we are today and then kind of the deeper history behind that, I think it really shows, you know, how much effort it really required by people to get to the point that we are today because it wasn't sort of a kind of, you know, predestined uh, event and conclusion. Yes. And I think one of the things that uh, dropped out of the book, there's a little bit more of this in the dissertation is you not only have a dis- uh, these conflicts within the INS, but particularly between the INS and the State Department. So on the U.S.-Mexico border, the State Department tended to have a much softer view of Mexican immigrants, uh, even if they were undocumented. And, you know, if you step back and think about it, this makes sense because the State Department's job was to maintain positive foreign relations between the U.S. and the rest of the world. So there's all there's constant put pushback uh, from the State Department with respect to INS and Border Patrol enforcement of the nation's immigration laws. Um, I think that's a little different from today because of the individuals who've been placed in charge of of both agencies, DHS and and state. I think that the current administration has managed to appoint individuals who, who tow similar lines with respect to immigration enforcement. But I think in other periods of U.S. history, it's important to to really tease out the differences and the conflicts with respect to border enforcement. And so when we're talking about, you know, the sort of internal divisions and the kind of the changes that go into these uh, agencies, one of the things that you focus on in your book is the reform efforts that the INS takes when it comes to immigration and the border during the Great Depression. And so why are these reform efforts important to the story of the INS? So again, this is uh, these stories are important because, uh, you know, to use your phrase monolith, it, it's a way of showing that the INS um, has a history. It changes over time. There are these internal divisions. Uh, and, and there are these moments when a more liberal leadership uh, uh, takes the helm of the INS and actually tries to institute reform. And we actually see some of this today within Homeland Security. The uh, Office of the Inspector General uh, recently conducted that, that review of CBP detention facilities, right? So even today, we see some internal pushback. So, so that's why these stories are important in, in the bigger picture scheme of things. Uh, In the 1930s, the period I cover, the story is important because the standard interpretation was that uh, you have these uh, very progressive-minded leaders uh, within the office of the president and then also within the Department of Labor, the very famous um, Secretary of Labor, Francis Perkins, and then a new uh, commissioner general of the INS, Daniel McCormick. And they really wanted to ameliorate some of the hardships surrounding deportation, and especially the deportation drives conducted under the Hoover administration, 
and even uh, the LA, the Los Angeles repatriation drives. And uh, the standard story is that, uh, you know, this, this was a reform effort that took place on, on the national level and that regional INS leaders simply, simply went along with what the, the leaders in the central office uh, asked them to do. And again, when I was in the archives, I stumbled upon a set of documents that really told the story of how uh, INS officials in the Southwest responded to these mandates that were coming out of the Department of Labor and out of the uh, Immigration Agency's central office. And uh, it was a very interesting set of documents um, that, that showed the pushback on the part of local immigration, especially, uh, local immigration officials, especially the Border Patrol, to the reforms that were instituted. And these were reforms that were instituted, again, to, to lessen the hardships surrounding deportation. And so going off of what you were just talking about and speaking about deportation, what does deportation look like in the earlier years of your study? And then how does it sort of change throughout this time period? So uh, deportation in the earlier years of my study, it's much more ad hoc, uh, much more fragmented than the kind of uh, uh, deportations that are taking place today. And deportations tend to be conducted at a local and regional level. And here I can cite to the repatriation drives that were conducted in the 30s, and they were conducted under the, for the most part, under the auspices of local, uh, local governments, such as the city of LA, the city of Detroit. And uh, earlier in the century, in the 1920s, uh, deportations mainly took place by means of this procedure known as voluntary departure, whereby uh, immigrants could, quote unquote, voluntarily leave the country once they had been detected by immigration and, and border patrol officials. Um, they, they had this option to, to leave the country. And that option uh, was appealing because immigrants supposedly would be able to come back to the country um, under this procedure. So uh, you do have moments such as the um, deportations conducted under the Hoover administration. You do have these moments when the federal government conducted deportation drives. Um, but it's, it's really by the 1950s and with Operation Wetback that you see the federal government taking on these mass deportations, uh, implementing these mass deportations in this really unqualified way. So, you know, with the, with the Hoover deportations that took place in, in 31, you know, the federal government instituted these nationwide deportations of all undocumented immigrants in the U.S., whether they were European or Latin American. And the rationale was this would help to solve the Great Depression. But there was enormous pushback from uh, Americans uh, in the U.S. as well as the rest of the world. And, and the federal government quickly pulled back. And, and that incident also led federal officials 
to take, as far as we know, uh, a relatively qualified role, a relatively limited role in the repatriation drives uh, of the 1930s. But by the 1950s, you, you really see the federal government shedding the, those concerns, those anxieties about public relations, shedding the concerns about the harms of deportation on ordinary immigrants and making this, this decision that, yes, the federal government can do this. The federal government can carry out mass deportation drives. And this is now something that we take for granted. Right. We, we, we've seen this for decades now, the federal government undertaking mass deportation. And, and I think most Americans just just accept this right? as, as a matter of rule and law, uh, of the rule of law, and as a matter of historical fact. And one of the things that you just mentioned was Operation Wetback and how this kind of fits into this history of the kind of changing nature of deportation. And so can you explain what this is to our listeners who might be unfamiliar with it? And then how does your interpretation of the kind of the history behind this differ from other historians? So Operation Wetback was a mass deportation drive. And it resulted, and here there is some dispute in the numbers. Officially, (laughs) according to the INS, it resulted in the removal of 1 million uh, uh, Mexican immigrants, although it it is documented that among those 1 million were uh, many Mexican-Americans. But then there are other figures that, that indicate that the numbers may have been closer to something like 300,000. So there's dispute over the numbers. And this uh, deportation drive was conducted to stabilize the Bracero program. Um, for uh, as long as the dep- uh, Bracero program was uh, in operation, the Mexican government had demanded as a conti- as a condition of its participation in the Bracero program it had demanded that the US government conduct regular removals of undocumented immigrants uh, in the United States and the Mexican government wanted the United States to get a better handle on undocumented Mexican immigration as a, a kind of human rights measure uh, studies had shown that of all farm workers in the U.S., uh, undocumented immigrants and especially undocumented Mexican immigrants suffered the most. So the Mexican government, to some extent, was trying to intervene on behalf of, of its nationals in the United States. It was trying to protect them by asking the U.S. government, look, you, you need to have a stronger enforcement policy with respect to undocumented immigration. And the Mexican government ref- would often refuse to re-sign the International Bracero Accords unless the U.S. government promised to strengthen enforcement. Now, <laughs> I should just add, and this is it's, it's a, an important part of the historical conversation on the Bracero Program and Operation Wetback, this doesn't mean we should see the Mexican Mexican government as the the white knight here, because as Kelly Lytle Hernandez has shown, right, the Mexican government 
played a very important role in helping to deport these immigrants from the United States and inf- often inflicted the very same abuses and harms as the U.S. Border Patrol. And, and this is a story that's replaying itself today um, uh, in the Remain in Mexico program, right? We're seeing how the Mexican government has uh, decided to cooperate with the U.S. government in the return of uh, asylum seekers to the nation of Mexico. And and we're seeing and we're hearing reports of how the Mexican government is inflicting many, many human rights abuses upon those individuals returned to Mexico. So um, going back to Operation Wetback, (laughs) I know that's a very long definition of Operation Wetback. Uh, In my book, I think... The interpretation of uh, that I provide is slightly different from the current literature in that um, I really try to say that uh, Operation Wetback has a much longer origin, and it's an origin that goes back to the Truman administration, and it also goes back to um, the kinds of things that the INS was doing in the American Southwest. So I, I... identify Operation Wetback as kind of the terminal point of this long effort on the part of Southwestern INS officials to lobby the federal government for more resources for enforcement, more money, more more manpower, um, statutes that will give them wider authority to enforce the laws. And uh, Southwestern INS officials begin this lobbying process under the Truman administration, and they continue through the Eisenhower administration. And I think those efforts culminate in Operation Wetback insofar as Operation Wetback, as I said earlier, really reflects this idea that uh, the federal government is going to be okay with very, very strong, very heavy-handed immigration enforcement measures. And so how does, and you've kind of already talked about this a little bit, but how does the history of the INS that you've you know, put together here influence today's immigration policy? So I think that, you know, there are multiple ways that this history um is, is significant today. So first, as I, I mentioned earlier, I think that for decades now, the U.S. has been co- uh, conducting these mass deportation campaigns. And, uh, you know, the numbers of deportations every year uh, runs into the hundreds of thousands. And I think the American public just takes this for granted. They have this mistaken notion that this is the way it always was. And we've forgotten that there were debates about this and that there were people, especially in the 1930s, saying, wait a minute, this is wrong, right? Deportation is a tremendous harm. Uh, It's something that separates families, uh, harms children, places individuals in, in terrible financial straits, returns them to places where they're going to face additional harm. So I think that a reading of history, I hope, will, will remind people that mass deportation hasn't been the norm in U.S. history. 
Uh, it's, it's only a recent, a relatively recent invention. And then I think that um, one, of the, one of the legacies of this story is there's been this longstanding lack of oversight, especially with respect to the Border Patrol and now CBP, one of the descendants of the Border Patrol. And it's this long-standing lack of oversight that's helped to perpetuate this culture of violence within the Border Patrol. And it's really striking how when you look at the, re- the reports, the findings of reformers in the 1930s with respect to the Border Patrol, and then the investigations of the Border Patrol that emerged in the thousands and Actually, most recently, a few days ago, by the ACLU of San Diego, they've they've produced some reports on the Border Patrol. They say the same thing over and over and over again. And, and then the, the conclusions are always the same. We need more oversight. We need more accountability. Congress needs to pay more attention to what the Border Patrol is doing. The Border Patrol needs to follow its own rules. And, and I think we need to ask ourselves, why Aren't we holding the Border Patrol more accountable? Why haven't we in the past? And and what is it going to take for us to do that? And then I think the third thing we really need to pay attention to, uh, especially now, is uh, the fact that the Border Patrol and the immigration agencies, once again, they're very powerful lobbying groups. And because they have more immediate access to lawmakers, they're often able to get their way. They're often able to get their needs and interests translated into law. I think it's much easier for them than it is for an ordinary individual like you and me. And, you know, we need to be watchful of that. We need to pay attention to how how the Border Patrol and the INS continues to define our nation's immigration laws. And they often do so in a way that's detrimental to immigrants themselves and perhaps even to the very quality uh, of our democracy. And so, you know, to kind of finish things off, you know, we have this great book in front of us. Once again, it's S. Deborah Kang, The INS on the Line, Making Immigration Law on the U.S.-Mexico Border, 1917 to 1954. I encourage all of our listeners to become readers and pick this book up, but we have this in front of us. So what can we expect from you in the future going forward? What might you be working on now? So I'm working on both historical and policy projects. I am currently an immigration policy fellow at the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at at UC San Diego. And next week, we'll be releasing a policy brief on the Remain in Mexico program. And that's it's based on uh, a lot of data collected by Professor Tom Wong, a political scientist at UCSD. And then in addition to that, I'm working on a monograph that will offer one of the first histories of immigration legalization in the United States. And I am also developing a project with Danielle Battisti at the University of Oklahoma on undocumented European immigration to the United States. 
Well, it all sounds both interesting and, you know, very important. And so I'm sure whenever you have, you know, your next book, we can come and have you bring you back onto the program and speak about that. And hopefully, you know, your policy initiatives will have an impact and, you know, hopefully positively, uh, you know, influence, you know, our current immigration situation. But in any case, uh, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was great talking.